<coughs> well, that's true. Um, I'm, um, I'm not going to talk about flowers tonight, but I'd like to. Um, it's nice to see so many of you here today. Uh, I, I think the subject is really quite important, uh, and I would, uh, because it's, it's my interest. So what I'm going to try and do this evening is to talk to you about how molecular advances in the last 10 years have really made a huge difference to the way we diagnose infection. Not only diagnose it, but also then give people better treatment and better um, care generally. I came to Cambridge in 1977. I used to work at the Wellcome Research Laboratories. That's the company side, not the, not the trust side, the company that makes the money for the trust. Um, and when I came here, virology was very, very different. Um, some viruses were only detected by electron microscopy. It's very insensitive uh, and it's very expensive. And so uh, it wasn't ideal, but it's all we had in those days for lots of viruses. We used to try and grow viruses. Um, but it took a week to grow most viruses. That's no use if you're trying to isolate a patient or treat a patient or prevent infection. But it's the best we have at the time. And growing them, mostly apart from <coughs> herpes simplex virus, isn't very sensitive. And then, most diagnoses of infection were made by detecting antibody. Now, we don't produce antibody to infections until about a week, 10 days after the infections hit us. So again, you've got a 10-day delay. There are rare exceptions to that. Um, so we're now using molecular techniques. So I'm just going to walk you through some of the issues. So even in the 2000s, we were still using electron microscopy <coughs> on feces and vesicle fluids to diagnose infections. Um, uh, see a virus there, uh, and it's a pox virus. Uh, sorry, it's a herpes virus, uh, and. Uh, we diagnosed chickenpox virus and zoster virus just by, used to go around the wards with a capillary tube and stick it in people's vesicles. The tube used to fill with vesicle fluid in the microscope, world record six minutes from bedside to diagnosis. Pretty good. Even molecular techniques can't beat that. Similarly, herpes simplex virus, if you can get some vesicle fluid, you can diagnose it quite quickly. Pox viruses, and of course when I started here, they were still having smallpox one in Birmingham shortly after I joined. I went to laboratory-related incidents. For feces, the only thing we did have for viruses was electron microscopy. That would be looking for rotaviruses. In those days, the only virus that was, were known were, were rotaviruses. The others, like norovirus, calicivirus, astroviruses, weren't yet fully uh, worked up. I saw this slide. I thought you might laugh. I don't know whether you get fresh ideas from this uh, Thailand market, but let's hope so if you don't. Um, now, interestingly, cowpox diagnosed there. You can see a picture of the cowpox. looks a bit like a, a hairy uh, hobies loaf. Most people don't know that cowpox doesn't come from cows at all. It comes from cats. And cats are quiet from field bones. So when you're taking history from someone with a, maybe a nasty lesion, like you see there on their arm, their thumb, their face, wherever, you say to them, have you got animals? Have you got pets? Have you got a cat? And then you've normally got the diagnosis. You can put it in the microscope or you can use molecular techniques these days to, to tell you what it is. <coughs> Molluscum contagiosum is another pox virus. You can see the purple uh, histology slide of that molluscum body there. If you take a molluscum body and squeeze it, like a zip, that molluscum body will fly out. And get, if you have a child with molluscum on their eyelid, just zip it. The molluscum body will fly out and the child as well. Not happy, but well. Uh, otherwise, you can stand there and irritate them for hours. It's really quite simple. You can see um, the molluscum bodies there on someone's willy, and on the top, uh, on someone's arm. And there is a picture of the molluscum. It's like swaddling clothes, if you imagine a baby in a, a manger in swaddling clothes. It's absolutely typical. It couldn't be anything else. Um, in 2009, um, we decided to get rid of the electron microscope in Cambridge, it was too big, it was too expensive, and it was too time-consuming <coughs> to uh, maintain. And we used the labour from that to move to our molecular section. And we shoved the EM work to the HPA reference lab in Collendale in North London. Um, and that saved the cost of the EM work, which was used to fund the molecular test. And that's how we were able to introduce molecular tests. Just going back to the gut again, these are the sort of viruses that you can see um, in the human gut in various instances. Uh, 
top right, rotaviruses, that's actually my daughter's rotavirus, my elder daughter's rotavirus. Rota because it's round uh, and absolutely typical. It couldn't be anything else. Shape and size, no mistaking what that is. Um, noroviruses, you'll know about norovirus, I'm going to say a bit more about those in a minute. Very fuzzy outline, difficult, difficult to detect by electron microscopy for sure. Saponviruses, they're not named after a shape or a description. They, they were discovered in Sapporo. So what they call saponviruses. Astroviruses look like stars. And adenoviruses, I was so a joke, adenoviruses, Actually, adenoviruses were first grown from a child's adenoids in the USA. That's why they're called adeno for from adenoids. So all those viruses can cause infections in the gut. Uh, and we now use molecular tests to diagnose infections for noroviruses only. It's cheap and easier to do uh, agglutination tests for rotaviruses and for adenoviruses. Uh, so that's what we do. But for norovirus, it isn't. And so we have to use a very rapid, uh, sensitive test. If you look at norovirus, you can see it peaks in the winter. Every January, February, you see. It used to be called winter vomiting disease. And they used to think it was because the shellfish in the sea, which is where a lot of it comes from, uh, where we you know, we send sewage into the sea, the shellfish sit there, ooh, 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 let's eat a bit of that. Ooh, floating turd, I'll have a bit of that. Um, and so the, the viruses get into the shellfish. Uh, and they thought because the shellfish used to be dumped in a bucket, and they all do that, I'm going back now quite a few years, they used to get cockles, hot water, dip, one, two, three, out. But the ones in the middle of the bucket never got the heat, the ones on the outside got quite a lot. And that's why you got large outbreaks. It used to be called winter vomiting disease. It still occurs mainly <coughs> in the winter, but we now know it is norovirus. Uh, symptoms, nausea, vomiting, diarrhoea, fever, chills, abdominal cramps. Incubation period, one to three days usually, um, and it normally lasts one to two days. Uh, but asymptomatic infection is common. The, the dogma is, if you've got somebody with a norovirus infection, but they're not having diarrhea and vomiting, they're not infectious. That holds true, actually, in a lot of outbreak investigations. So you need to get the norovirus from the individual to another individual for it to spread if you just perfectly well like me and I've got norovirus, no one's going to get infected. And the problem with norovirus, of course, you suddenly feel sick. You don't know you're going to be sick. And all of a sudden, you're sick. Now, once that's happened, most of you in this room will be infected. There's nothing you can do. That vomit is aerosolized, it flops around the room. And apart from a few of you at the back, maybe, um, you've had it. Uh, and there's nothing you can do apart from clean it up and try and prevent someone else from being infected. Norovirus is a big problem. In hospitals, as you well know, Adam Brooks are always putting out warnings. If you're feeling sick or whatever, don't come in. And they should sit sitting on the television every year to tell people not to come in if they felt sick. Um, and children are more likely to transmit it, which is why they, they try and restrict children visiting uh, in the winter. Cruise ships, nursing homes are a problem. Cruise ships are a huge problem. You think of a cruise ship, it's a culture vessel for viruses. You've got someone coming in with a, with a bit of gut rot, feel all right, next day, whoop, all over the buffet, whoops, there you've got an outbreak, and it spreads from one, one person to the next. Uh, and that goes on for a week or two, everyone then eventually gets better, you've still got environmental contamination, whoops, here come another group of people in the ship, off we go again. This is why they give you a questionnaire when you've got a cruise ship, and if you say you've had diarrhea vomiting in a few days before, you won't get on that ship. Equally, they've learned to uh, not have a cold buffet on the first night of a cruise. You'll never see a cold buffet on the first night of a cruise because that's how people used to pick things up, you know, contaminate things with their fingers. The other thing they do, they've got what I call a bleeding bucket mentality. It's what I call a bleeding bucket mentality. And that's if anyone's ill, someone will come out and bring it, put some hot soap in water, mop it up and disappear again. Reducing the environmental contamination with hot soapy water because you can't use chlorine on most, and you can't use chlorine on cruise ships now too because there's lots of soft fittings. So getting rid of that gross environmental contamination can dampen down the risk of spread. Holiday camps are another problem. So in, in hospitals you need to close wards, you need to restrict patients and staff movement, you need to remove symptomatic staff until 48 hours after the last symptoms. That works really well. Clean the ward thoroughly before reopening and be firm with bed managers. Uh, 
there's a very, I mean, Admiral Tour is very good about this, and, and we, although we did have some reasonable outbreaks, um, I'm, I'm not convinced we could have done a lot better. It's a big problem. You've no idea what a big problem it is. You know, the operations room, you have to, we got samples um, uh, six, by six o'clock the night before, they were run overnight, nine o'clock the zocks out, go to the operations room, and you're moving patients around, you're saying, okay, this person's got narrow, this one's got narrow, we'll move those into there, that gives us a free room, and clear that room, move. It was like, you know those puzzles where you move bits around, just like that. Uh, and you have to be very, very careful, because once you get it spread into another area, it's off again. So it's really quite an art form in a sense. Now, norovirus, we've all had it. I mean, everyone in this room has had norovirus, probably more than once. Um, when we're born, we have our mother's maternal antibody. We're born with the same uh, antibody as our mothers are, it's the IgG antibody. Uh, and so, uh, under six months, there's quite a lot of uh, antibody in babies, which is why you don't get babies with norovirus infection. And then, once children become mobile, um, they start to go to play school, nurseries, uh, and pick up the infection. And I would say, do you know the difference between a baby and a seeker? Well, a baby, got that wrong, a seagull flits along the shore. <laughs> so, uh, children get more mobile uh, and start getting infections, go to nurseries, and as we go through, you've got nurseries and playgroups, and you've got primary school, and remember, these are viruses that are very unstable. They're RNA viruses, and they change their genetic material regularly. So that the virus you have this year will not be the same as the virus you have in three years' time. It's constantly changing, and our immunity only lasts for six months. So it's really got us, you know. They're really clever viruses, if you call the virus clever. Then when, of course, adults have got children, they get it from their kids. Uh, like myself, if you're a grand person, then you can get it from your grandchildren. And when you get to the nursing home, you probably have it for the 16th time. So this is a virus that's extremely successful, uh, unfortunately. Now, this was a specialty of mine. Uh, I used to work for the Health Protection Agency as the regional microbiologist for the East of England. And I had national responsibility for flu and for noroviruses. And we did a lot of work trying to work on a national strategy for norovirus diagnosis. So we can diagnose it by electron microscopy, too insensitive. Enzyme amino acid, yes, we can use that. And that's where you use um, antibodies stuck on a plate, then you get the feces on, and then you have a detector antibody with a, with a, a flag on it. Um, but really, it's reverse transcriptase PCR that we use. It's far more sensitive. Uh, for electron microscopy, you need at least a million viruses per mil. It's very rare with norovirus, so you usually don't find it. Um, but it's the only catch-all method. And, you know, if you are losing molecular techniques and you have a particular bit of molecular material you're looking for, that's all you're going to find. That's the problem with molecular techniques. You, you find what you're looking for, you won't find what you're not looking for. Electron microscopy, if it's there in sufficient numbers, it's the right size and the right shape, you'll see it. So it's the number of viruses that's the problem. Enzyme assay employs specific antibody, um, which is often genotype uh, specific. Problem here is if you're using monoclonal antibodies, and monoclonal antibodies will only see uh, the strain you made the monoclonal antibody against. And after a year or two, that virus is mutated and it's useless. So that's got its drawbacks too. Whereas with PCR, as long as you use a conservative piece of the molecular RNA, then you're going to have a test which will last for quite a long time. This test is mainly performed in regional uh, virus laboratories like Cambridge here, uh, but is now performed in other, other um, hospitals as well. Now this is kind of an interesting slide, and I don't want to be too uh, complicated about it, but you'll see that there are two bars. If you look at the less than one-year-old, you've got cases on the left of the red and blue bar, and then we've got controls. What that shows you is that at all ages, you've got controls with no symptoms. The yellow ones have got no symptoms, and yet they've got a sizable amount of norovirus when you start it. And yet, I've told you that those people will not transmit. So it's about the amount of virus you've got and whether or not you've got symptoms. So having the virus isn't good enough. So there's no good having a really sensitive test and testing everybody, because you get a lot of false positives. They're maybe infected, but they're not relevant to the outbreak control. So we only test symptomatic people. We don't screen the worried well. It's not helpful. So again, it's a very particular form of um, diagnosis. 
So all original uh, HPA laboratories use the reverse transcriptase PCR. And the important thing is you, you must turn it round quickly. So seven days a week, you must turn it round, certainly within 24, uh, 48 hours, and hopefully towards the front end of that. Because if you want to make a difference, if you want to uh, isolate patients, clean wards, organise yourself so that you are, you're making a difference to, to individuals and, and outbreaks, you've got to do it quickly. So there's a real discipline here in, in getting the specimen quickly, setting up the test, and getting a quick result. Once we've got a positive result, then a sample of those samples, a number of those samples, go to the Collendale HPA reference laboratory. These were the HPA labs are, so you'll see Cambridge, Southampton, Bristol, Birmingham, Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle. And in London there, in North London, you've got the Collendale reference lab. So those specimens are referred to the Collendale reference lab. One is positive specimen for outbreak, up to six uh, negative specimens um, throughout the year are sent for two reasons. One is to monitor the quality control in the regional labs. Because if someone says it's negative and Collendale says it's positive, you've got a problem, Houston. Or the other way around. And equally, because this is a virus that changes regularly and mutates, by having a regular flow of samples, they can run these every week and monitor how the RNA is changing. And so when the new strains are introduced, they can find them. And that often affects uh, public health action in a number of different ways. And that's the genome. So you're looking at a conserved part of the genome for, um, for looking for uh, the virus in diagnostic specimens, the RDRP. And then if you want to genotype, if you want to see its genotype 1, 2, 3, 4, whatever, classification, you would use the capsid, use a different part of it. And viruses are all like this, on that says. You use different bits of the genome to do different things. And look, look at the array of viruses you get. This is just a small sample. Interesting, the reference strains are all called after outbreaks, like uh, Norwalk, original. Norwalk is a town in New York State. Uh, Southampton spelt wrong. Desert Shield is one of the uh, famous outbreaks in the war. Chiba was Japanese, and so on. All these various things uh, are where they were grown, and you can see here the different GM groups. If you look at any one time, like you look in Cambridge now, and norovirus is circulating, you'll see that there are different. Strain. So this particular snapshot, most of the strains were what we call the Grimsby strain, and you also have the Girlington strain and others. So you'll never just get one virus. It's not like flu, where one virus comes, everyone gets that usually. Uh, this is very different. You've got a whole load of different viruses come circulating. So to finish off noroviruses, um, to reduce the risk of spread, we need to cohort nurse asymptomatic patients. Most importantly, adhere to hand washing. And it's no good using alcohol gel. Alcohol does not kill noroviruses. Alcohol does not kill clusters in defitually. It's all very nice, rubbing your hands and feeling pies. It does fuck all use when you're trying to uh, uh, stop the uh, norovirus or, or clusters in defitually outbreak. So that gets very confusing in people's minds. So hand washing, proper hand washing, as a general rule for life, is a very good thing to do. Use elbow taps. You don't want to be contaminating the tap with your dirty hands. You can elbow your way around. Good practice. Um, you <coughs> single rooms with ensuite toilets. You don't want people flapping out of their room going to the toilet and not making it. Um, surface finishes uh, are important. And when the new Rosie Hospital was built, I say new Rosie, it was built about 30 years ago, um, there was a big fight with Robinson, who, who paid for it, because he wanted it to look like a home from home. He wanted curtains and carpets and soft fittings and they you know, wanted Charles Conrad to come in and fit it on. It's no good for infection control. And it was a, we had a long, hard and difficult discussion about, okay, we're going to have your cuddly area there, but please let's have some hard surfaces here. Because it's very difficult to decontaminate carpets cleaning up. So soft furnishings are difficult. Increased risk of spread projectile vomiting. If staff are infected, that's going to spread it because they're going to walk around and, and spread it too. Reduce staffing levels. And this is when, of course, I think a problem we're going into at the moment, not going into, gone into, where you've got significant pressures on staffing. No matter what the government says, there is significant um, pressure on nurses. And I feel sorry for them because you know, they're doing their best and they're trying to cover so many bases. Um, 
If they're put under pressure and they're forced to go from an infected room to a non-infected room and they're having someone's calling them or whatever, there is an increased risk. They will take the infection with them. And so that's all very difficult. Um, contaminated soft furnishings, open wards like the Nightingale wards, not good. Uh, and carpets contaminated, it's very difficult to get the virus out of the carpet. <coughs> deep shadow. Okay. So in 2004, um, we did following virus culture. We did enteroviruses, those are the growing in the gut. They cause meningitis, they cause rashes, colds. I don't know what I've got now. I might have an enterovirus, I don't think I do actually. I think I've probably got a, a rhino or a coronavirus, but herpes simplex virus, varicella zoster virus, chicken pox and zoster, mumps, don't see much of that now, see a bit. Respiratory viruses, some grow better than others. Adenoviruses, cause eye disease, rashes, um, and a variety of other things. Cytomegalovirus, congenital infection. Uh, we used to grow all those. Um, but in 2009, we stopped virus culture again to invest that money in molecular testing. Uh, we got quicker results, it was much more sensitive. Um, but the problem came, which we never envisaged, was we were one of the first to do this as a regional laboratory. And because it's so sensitive, you're obviously going to pick up a lot of viruses. And if you think about it, um, let's say a child has a virus infection. <laughs> All three of my grandchildren have virus infections at the moment, hence mine. Um, and then they get another and they get another. But if you look at that child, you probably find three or four viruses. Which one's causing the current symptoms? You know, I'll show you the evidence in a minute. Um, so, the way we approach it is we do what we call syndromic molecular testing. So we have a group of tests for respiratory viruses, and that would be influenza A, influenza B, parrot influenza, adenoviruses, respiratory syncytial virus, largely in children, rhinoviruses, common cold, coronaviruses, common cold, metanumovirus, RMIRSV. And so we do all those on a respiratory cycle. Um, and maybe we get more than one positive. For central nervous system disease, by which I mean encephalitis, more likely to be meningitis. We do herpes simplex virus, uh, which uh, can cause encephalitis with a 70% mortality, and can cause neonatal herpes when the mother at birth gives it to the baby from a genital lesion. High mortality rates. Enteroviruses that tend to give you meningitis. So we do all those in, in, from the cerebrospinal fluid um, in one block. And then if someone's got vesicular skin lesions, we do herpes simplex virus and varicella zoster virus for chickenpox uh, shingles. <coughs> and if someone has conjunctivitis or eye disease, we'd use alpha-virus and herpes simplex virus. So those syndromic tests are meant to say, well, we think this is what we're trying to be, let's see. Remember doing one and then doing another and then doing another, you'd be faffing around forever. Um, and when we looked at this, the first trial results we got, out of 223 samples, this was in January, I can't remember the year. There were 44% uh, of the infections in early January, which was RSV, 16% were rhinovirus, 5.8% were flu A. We've got a moderate outbreak going on at that time. 5% were metanumovirus, 2.6% were adenovirus, 1.3% were paraflu, and 0.4% were flu B. And the point about showing you this is to say, at any one time in the community, particularly this time of year, you're going to get all kinds of viruses. When you go to the doctor and say, what do you think's wrong with me, doctor? He's not going to be able to tell you. Um, in fact, my GP used to like me, because I used to go and say, there's RSV around. Oh, thank you. Because then he'd tell me, oh, it's, it's RSV, Mrs. Smith. And they'd come to me and say, oh, my doctor's about my child's RSV. He's very clever. So marvellous. Marvellous. Um, Co-infections. 24% of respiratory samples had more than one virus. So 23 of the 223 had RSV and rhinovirus. Three had RSV and adenovirus, and so on and so on. Look at the bottom here, you've got triplets. So you've got metanumovirus, enterovirus, and rhinovirus for one of them. Parainfluenza, um, four. Rhinovirus and metanumovirus there. And when you've got those pictures of viruses, and you've got a child in an intensive care unit, you're thinking, okay, what's causing the problem here? Where am I going with this one? Because some are treatable and some are not. And you have to look at the patient, you have to look at their history, who else has been ill around them, you have to look at their symptoms. 
if they have any underlying features, any clinical conditions like immunosuppression or whatever, then you have to look at how strong the signal is from your molecular tests. And it's usually the case that the most recent infection will have the highest signal. Not always the case, but it usually is. And you usually go on that premise unless you think there may be something else afoot and treat accordingly. One of the biggest problems we have, um, and, and you might have seen on the news yesterday um, about the National Risk Register, the Sally Davis, the Chief uh, Medical Officer, was talking about the National Risk Register and how she wanted to put antibiotic resistance onto that risk register. There is a National Risk Register. Flu, of course, pandemic flu, is on that risk register. And you've no idea how much work goes under the swan to prepare for a flu outbreak and to, to deal with a flu outbreak. I don't really want to go to another one. I think just before I retired two years ago, I went to the last swine flu outbreak. And you're working 20-hour days, for, you know, seven days a week for about three months. It's not good. There's an awful lot of work goes on in the public health arena. Um, flu is an interesting virus because it's got eight genomic segments, and they're all separate. So they're not joined to each other, so they can float around uh, inside the virus. You know, first it's there, first it's there, like a baby having a scan. Ooh, there's a foot, you know. And so they're not connected. And so when those viruses, if that virus gets into uh, another animal, and here the example is classically uh, an avian virus, which is red, all the red segments are, are the, the, the duck, and the human, all their segments are in blue, they both together infect the pig. This is the classical uh, scenario. That, those viruses co-circulate in that pig, grow in the same cells, and the possibility then is you'll end up with viruses like the one at the bottom, the new reassorted virus type, with some blue bits and some um, red bits. Now, if that virus can spread from the pig to humans, you've got a problem, Houston. But more importantly, this is what happened to H5 flu, more importantly, if that virus can then spread from humans to humans, you have a pandemic. And within a few days, that virus is going to start buzzing around the world on planes. <laughs> well, that's the basis of, um, of pandemic flu issue. The interesting thing about flu is that it doesn't just infect humans. Uh, and the same types can, for example, here, H1 flu can infect humans, birds, and pigs. H3 can infect humans and pigs. H7 can infect humans and birds, for example. So all those animals are mixing together and spreading infections among themselves. So anyone humans get involved, well, that's not true. Uh, well, yes, anyone humans get involved, we really get excited. However, within the farming industry, of course, they get very excited because if you've got avian flu, then all of a sudden your egg production falls or your birds start falling off the perch or whatever. And there's a lot of uh, flu in the in in um, bird uh, farms, and there's an awful lot in eastern England uh, that from time to time cause problems. When, and they have to slaughter all the birds. Do you remember, do you remember um, the um, turkey outbreak? Do you remember the turkey outbreak? Yeah, I can't remember the name. Matthews, Bernard Matthews. Remember the trucks and killing all the birds? Well, then, they, then we go in, and we're looking for any symptoms in the, in the uh, humans. We go in there to look at the humans. So it's quite a palaver, really. Usually it comes to nothing, sometimes it does. This is very interesting. If you look at this picture, you will see that the swine flu outbreak was quite a com caused by quite a complicated virus. On the right, you'll see um, that this virus, which is H1N1 2009, is made up of many different lineages. For a start, in 1998, two of the genes, uh, PB2 and PA, moved from a duck to pigs. In 1968, the PB1 gene moved from a duck to, or avians, to man. And then in 1998, it went to pigs. In 1918, the big flu pandemic, the hemagglutinin, the neuroprotein, and the NS genes went from um, birds to pigs. And in 1979, the NA and the matrix protein genes went from birds to pigs. All those four came together to form this assault on the right-hand side. And you can see what a muddle, what a mongrel that virus is. But that was the virus that managed to spread 
to humans and then between humans. Um, and it was, I know I forget, it was um, April the 26th, uh, 2009. Uh, it, was, it was a Friday afternoon. Uh, and I, don't work, I didn't work Friday, so I looked after our el elder grandson. And uh, you've got to go to a teleconference. You have to be on a teleconference. Now, I've got to, no, you have to drop it, you have to be there. It ended up being the American ambassador, the uh, Mexican ambassador, Downing Street, Vermont Health, God knows who else, because this was the first call that the swine flu was coming. They've got cases in Mexico where uh, they've got high mortality, maybe that was because they had poor health care on there, the other. Um, and then it, they'd found two cases in Texas, which is what really spooked the Americans and set the whole thing off. Within three days, that virus, we were looking for it then, of course, that virus then appeared in London. You take love for that virus to occur. And of course, that outbreak spread largely to the UK and Spain, because we're the two countries more associated with the USA and Mexico. And in the UK, <coughs> the two hotspots of the, of the outbreaks were Birmingham and London, and that's where the planes largely came in from those locations. Then it got into the school population, and that's why it spread a lot and much more slowly in other areas. It wasn't terribly um, prevalent here in Cambridge in the early days. Um, and that's how the outbreak spread, amplified through school children, which is why they closed schools. If you see schools being closed in a flu outbreak, it's to stop the outbreak, to take it down a peg, because it, it, you just get rampant spread. Now, one of my jobs was to coordinate the detection of it. So, when the avian flu um, was appearing over the horizon, we devised, a group of us devised, with the um, Collingdale reference lab, a test for diagnosing flu. And if you look at that diagram thing on the right, it shows the amplification of the RNA, and the higher the, the, higher the curve, the more uh, RNA there is. Um, first question. I got a sample, I put it in my, my test, is it influenza? Uh, for that we use a generic influenza A and a generic influenza B. So all flu A's will be positive in that test, but all flu B's will be positive. Then we ask the question, if it's flu A, which is what we're interested in, is it seasonal flu, is it H1 or H3, or is it bird flu, is it H5, or is it swine flu H1? And for that we have to have very specific assays. And so uh, those assays were set up, they were put into what we call a multiplex, which meant you had about four or five different tests going on at the same time. So with one result on one machine with those curves, you can say, okay, that's one flu. Very neat. Um, I've taken no credit for that at all, but um, very neat. And Martin Curran in Cambridge did a lot of work on that. So this is the kind of timeline. Um, in 2005, the government were twitching about swine flu. You've got to do something, no, sorry, avian flu, H5. You've got to do something about avian flu. It's coming, it's coming, you've got to do something. So HPA being a sort of semi-government organisation, we were told we had to develop a test, so we did. And then we set up an on-call system, so that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I had four staff on call to come in and test samples from bird-related outbreak or whatever. That worked beautifully for several years, still working now. Um, and then in 2006, um, we developed the generic flu A, flu B, and H for uh, tests as well. And then later in 2008, we developed the H1 H3 subtyping test. And the reason we did that was because resistance to antivirals emerged in Bristol. And they thought that was going to spread rapidly uh, if it was only in H1. So by doing H1 and H5 subtyping, which is using a different piece of the RNA, then um, if it's H3, you treat with one drug. If it's H1, you treat with another. So all these tests have got quite a lot of clinical utility. And that's what a screen would look like. That's what a multiplex screen would look like. So you've got a flu A curve, you've got a flu, um, flu B, flu A, H5, which is the uh, avian flu, and then you've got the control uh, in the bottom. So that's what, in the lab, that's what the screen would look like. That you're looking at. So that's very important work. Bubbles along most of the time, but when you get an outbreak, it, it really gets heavy. One of the other advantages of molecular testing is epidemiology. So, finding out which viruses are related to which viruses in an outbreak, and that's really quite important. Linking patients in outbreaks. For measles, it's important because 
uh, it's a vaccine-preventable disease, there isn't a lot of it around. You want to know if someone gets me, is where they got it from? Where's it come from, Latvia? Has it come from Cleethorpes? Where's it come from? And because it's an RNA virus and they're all different, you can tell that it's this virus or that virus. Hepatitis C, same thing, RNA virus, multiple variants. So we did an outbreak study in Ferris and Edmonds for drug users, and we could tell quite surely which patient had passed on which hep C virus to whom. So you could map the drug use in patients surreptitiously uh, by following the virus. HIV for safety. So if you've got two HIV virus isolates that are absolutely genetically identical, there's a link between those two. So identifying outbreaks, uh, identifying different independent cases, not part of an outbreak. And I'm, I'm going to talk about MSA <coughs> later because that's the latest bit of work that's um, not done by me, but done by a colleague of mine. Um, and so you can use sequencing or specific areas of the genome uh, to diagnose uh, an outbreak or to link patients or that. Uh, this is the uh, MRSA work, and this is done by uh, Sharon Peacock, who's professor here in the University uh, Infectious Disease um, Professor, part sponsored by the Health Protection Agency. Um, and she's done some terrific work working with the Sanger Centre. She's allowed me to use these slides tonight. Um, and she, I, was, <laughs> I was doing some tutoring in Kuwait, funny enough, um, sitting there in my hotel room, and up comes Sharon on the television outside the Rosie. I just you know, can't get rid of these people. Um, it was about this. Uh, so you've got the standard infection control investigation of an outbreak. So, Find a sick person, take a specimen, grow the bacterium, uh, identify the bacterium, usually by various uh, biochemical markers or whatever. Versus uh, epidemiological data as well as genome sequencing. What was interesting about this study was they looked at an outbreak um, in the Rosie Hospital in Adam where there are 6,000 deliveries a year. And uh, there were 24 cot high dependency area in a special care baby unit. Um, and all infants to Skaboo are screened for MRSA on admission and then screened weekly to make sure that it doesn't spread. Or if it does spread, you're onto it really quickly. And all mothers are screened on admission too. But in 2011, they had an outbreak. And three cases, uh, patients 11, 12, and 13, um, were linked. And this triggered a major investigation, including a view of the last six months' uh, isolates. And they found an additional eight cases with the same antiviral, which means antibiotic sensitivity power. And mapping showed that there were three time periods. There's the time period circle there, uh, and that one near the beginning of the outbreak, and that one at the beginning of the outbreak. At that time, there wasn't enough for an outbreak. Uh, and they deep cleaned um, the unit. Uh, what was interesting about this outbreak, it wasn't one obviously spreading to another. Some of them, there were no links between the cases, and there were gaps in time between this cluster of cases and that cluster of cases. It was odd. So something funny was going on. And what Sharon and her team did was uh, sequence the first MRSA isolates from these cases. 14 isolates were a novel ST2371 strain, which is a single locus variant of ST22, which is epidemic MRSA, EMRSA type 15. And this also differed from the ST22 <coughs> uh, strain, in that they possessed the genes for Pantan, uh, Valentine, Leucocyte, and PVL. Now, PVL is a very nasty gene. If you get PVL in the Staph aureus, you can get a nasty, nasty illness. Um, and they constructed a phylogenetic tree. And you can see on the right the phylogenetic tree. Um, and you can see the outbreak on the left. Uh, and they <coughs> differentiated uh, this uh, by molecular techniques into, four, uh, um, into 14 isolates. And they compared with a mean of 550 times um, uh, that were available. So it was quite a restricted group. Um, they identified all MRSA uh, isolates cultured and stored since the start of the outbreak, um, and they found an additional 19 MRSAs. 
uh, and the sequencing revealed that 10 arsenates were ST2371, all associated with infection. 10 new cases, they thought, were linked to the special care baby unit uh, through a previously undetected transmission network. Um, the new sample, six were from GPs, two were from the breast clinic, um, and they drew epidemiological links with the special care baby unit for nine out of 10 cases. Um, and they discovered a carrier, like typhoid betty. You may not have heard of typhoid betty, some of you will. Uh, they found a carrier that they hadn't detected before. And indeed, one member of staff was carrying the virus. Um, Fetch control team met with senior clinicians and so on. Um, and they then rescreened staff members. Uh, 154 were screened, one member was positive, uh, taken off work, and the outbreak stopped. But a lot of these cases were not being detected by conventional. Uh, bacteriological techniques. This outbreak can only have been detected by molecular techniques. Um, they picked 20 primary plate colonies from the, the isolates from the infected staff worker um, and sequenced the outbreak and sequenced the uh, strain. And they got a, a group of different related strains called a cloud of diversity. Um, but they were very sim most of them were very similar. But this was interesting, because what they found in that one patient, is, or one staff member, is if you pick 20, you know what I mean? If you take an agar plate and you've got 20 colours on, if you pick one of those and stick it in your sequencer, pick another, stick it in your sequencer, you get many different types. They're all, a lot of them are closely related. But like the RNA viruses, these bacteria are mutating. So you, the longer you're infected, you end up with a whole mixture of bacteria that are mostly closely related. HIV does the same thing, Hep C does, quasi-species. They all do the same thing, a similar phenomenon. The costs related to this outbreak were reckoned to be in excess of 10,000 pounds. Yet the cost of rapid sequencing of one MRSA, because it's become so cheap these days, is only about 95 pounds. And so this made the case, the importance of this paper, was it made the case that it's now possible and cheap enough to use molecular techniques to investigate outbreaks and make a real difference. Now, I'll give you another example of measles. Um, most of you won't have seen a case of measles, thank the Lord. Um, I'm 65 at the moment. My twin sister died of measles in 1950. Not that long ago that you got measles. Um, and the problem with measles is that you can't distinguish measles often from other virus-inducing rashes. Um, and it's very dangerous. 75% of tap rate, very infectious, dangerous to immunocompromised patients. There is a vaccine, yes, it is safe, no, there aren't any problems with it. Um, the accuracy of diagnosis is still less than 5% in this country. So if you go to the GP with measles, chances are, like in Cambridge, it's probably not true, but generally speaking, uh, they probably won't get it right most of the time. This can cause large outbreaks in hospitals. It will find those who are non-infected, uh, and if you're immunocompromised, then you need quickly to be detected and treated um, with immunoglobulin <coughs> vaccine. You can't treat it, but you can prevent its spread by giving contacts prophylaxis. There's a, there's a rash, measles. If you haven't seen measles, you have now. This wonderful picture was taken of a, a, a junior doctor in Adam Brooks about 20 years ago, um, who walked around about every ward where there were infectious diseases, uh, where there were immunocompromised patients over a weekend, over a, over a bank holiday weekend, and carried on working because there was no one to relieve her. I came in on Tuesday morning and discovered that this woman had been wandering around with measles. It took four days and eight people to sort that mess out because it's very dangerous. Luckily, we had no other cases and we had no deaths, but it could have been very nasty indeed. If you look at measles over the years, if you look back in 1915, this is what I told you about my sister was infected, you can see the red line, how many cases there were. And then the uh, kill vaccine was introduced, and uh, uh, vaccine was introduced, sorry, in about after 1970, live vaccine, and the number of cases went down, but they never went away. And it wasn't until MMR was introduced that actually the cases uh, really began to come down to a level where we didn't get outbreaks. And of course then we have the rubbish about the uh, MMR risk. Um, 
people then can put the vaccine. So we now see more cases coming back occasionally. Um, it will go away again, I think. But, uh, it's been a difficult time. And there is an example of all uh, different strains of measles and phylogenetic tree and how they're related. So look how many variants there are. Um, but this is one actually taken from, from Collindale who referenced that. And they can tell me if that specimen's come, if that strain has come in from, uh, I don't know, Tunisia or Morocco or USA or Italy. You know, they've got a very good hold on it. Finally, I just wanted to say a few words, not on infectious disease, but about uh, molecular diagnostics in general. And moving on to cancer diagnosis for the last few slides. Because this also is where a huge advance is being made. Uh, very kindly uh, given these slides by George Vassily at the Sanger Centre, Dr. George Vassily. Traditionally, um, we use uh, electro, uh, light microscopes to diagnose um, cancers. Now we're using molecular techniques more and more. It was 1595 that the microscope was uh, discovered, modern microscope in 1995. And what you do is, if someone, let's say someone has breast cancer, you take a biopsy, you fix that into uh, alcohol, and then you put it into um, uh, paraffin wax. Then you put it on a microtome, and you make it look like slicing bread. Take a very thin slice of that tissue, stain it with hematoxin and eosin or whatever stage you've got, and look at it under a light microscope. Purple is bad, red is good. So if you've got abnormal cells, they're normal, normally purple. Um, and so looking at the morphology, looking at the colour, looking at the type of cells, you can tell, histopathologists or hematologists can tell what sort of infection people have. So in the cellular, uh, in cancer diagnostic lab, you've got cellular phenotyping, looking at microscopy, immunohistochemistry, where you stain cells with certain antibodies and see what type they are, flow cycle, <coughs> and then genetic tests, where you're using cytogenetics, molecular genetics, looking for specific mutations, uh, and so on. Um, and this is, this is the benefit, because now we've got these, the knowledge we've got is that, of course there isn't just one breast cancer, of course there isn't just one liver cancer, or one There's all different sorts, and these different cancers respond differently to different drugs, some are sensitive, some aren't, some have different receptors, some are good, some are bad, um, and knowing exactly what uh, your cancer is, what markers it's got, what it might be susceptible to, how aggressive it may be, has really revolutionised how cancer is treated, or cancers are treated. So colorectal cancers, uh, different mutations, different genes, and different drugs that go along with them. You can see the examples of breast cancer. Uh, various uh, genes, uh, you've got various uh, mutations, uh, and various um, uh, responses you can use. And so on. That's just examples of, of different ways you can treat it. Um, and the other thing that's happened is the rapid uh, increase in molecular testing. So if we look here through 2000 to 2011, you can see there was a step change in about 2004 5 when there weren't very many um, tests being done, this is the Sanger Center data, I'm very grateful to for this. You can see at the top the different sorts of um, sequencing they were doing. And when they got next generation sequencing, which is much quicker to do, there was a rapid increase in the number of tests they could do. And equally, the cost per megabase plunged rapidly. So you can see now how much cheaper it is now than it was a few years ago, which means that the total yield of genetic material they're developing is now growing exponentially. But then, of course, comes the problem. The problem then is what am I going to do all this data? And now they're building a new building in Saga because they've got to analyse the data. They've got to have informatics and they've got to have people comparing this with that and doing matching of this and looking at that and who's your pattern here. There's a whole new industry growing up of people who are electronically manipulating these data to try and make sense out of um, so here, here is another example um, in AML, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, different AMLs, AML 1, 2, 3, 4, and so on. Different transcription factors, different, uh, different modifications. Um, and the various, look at these various genetic markers, and I don't understand this because I'm not a hematologist. You can see that the prognosis, the point about this is the prognosis can either be thought to be intermediate or 
favourable or poor, using these molecular markers. Um, I don't know about you, but if I had cancer, I'd want to know, number one, was it treatable, uh, how long have I got to live, you know, what was sensible and all that stuff. So um, this is giving the information that patients can, patients can use. And it isn't just having to take biopsies. You don't have to sort of punch a hole in someone to get a specimen uh, to, to see what's going on. You can now use plasma DNA. And you can see an example of a tumor-specific mutation, the blue wiggly line there, which has come out of the cancer cell into the bloodstream, and we can find it now in the blood. So it's a simple blood test now that we can use, non-invasive, which also helps in diagnosis. Um, where I am at the moment, um, I'm actually, I used to be Vice President of the Royal College of Pathologists, and currently I am leading a group uh, developing new curricula for clinical scientists across the piece as part of, of modernising scientific careers for the Department of Health. And what we're doing now is we're doing a radical bit of work creating training programmes for the new molecular scientists of the future. And this is quite exciting because we don't quite know where it's going. We know it's going somewhere rapidly, but we don't quite know what's over there. We know what's here, we know what's here. But thinking it takes five years to train someone at the consultant level. Um, it's very taxing trying to make sure that you've got your training programme right that will last for five years. So a lot of work going into this, and we're trying to build, and what we have in hospitals are molecular labs that span everything from biochemistry to hematology to microbiology to genetics, various things. And all of those different um, specialties need two sorts of people. They need the people who can do the tests, the technicians, who do a fantastic job making sure specimens uh, are processed properly and give an accurate result. And then you need people who are specialty specific, who are going to interpret those results and advise people on patient care. So they'll find a certain marker and say, well, in this patient, these factors, this is the risk factor, and talk to the oncologists about what should happen. And that's what we're training for here. So this is where we are now, and, and I hope that more and more people will become excited about this and will want to train in this area. It is very exciting. And I've worked. 36 years in Aquinox, I've had an absolute ball. I've loved every minute of it. I'm still fiddling around at the Strategic Health Authority in the twilight years of my, my career. 